Welcome to episode 9 of Popper's Cage. I'm one of your hosts, Gavel. With me today are Dime Collector. Hey, Dime. Hello. Hey. And we have Lowe back this time. Uh, hey, Lowe. Uh, how's it going? Yeah, things are just fine. Oh, yeah? Well, that's, that's good. That's good. And we also have back with us special Kyle. Hey, Kyle. Hello. Hello. Uh, yeah, Kyle had uh, he signed a two-episode contract, so he's, he's keeping up with that. Otherwise, we were going to send some thugs to rough him up a bit. I'm obligated to be here. Yes, that's right. And especially since this episode, we're going to talk about affinity. So, Kyle, um, let's get an overview of how this deck works. So, so how does it win? What are strengths and weaknesses? It wins through two main ways. The first way is that it's an aggro deck, much like a large portion of the format. So you have a whole bunch of big guys. You have Carapace Forger, which is a 4-4 four four when you have Metalcraft. You have Mirror Enforcer and Frogmite, just metal Metalcraft vanilla guys. And you have Atogs. And those are your main threats that... I would say 75% of the games you're going to win just through direct damage. Maybe drain them for, for a little bit at the end with your Disciple and Bolts. Okay. So the deck at its core is just an aggro deck for the format. Probably 75% of your wins are going to come through direct damage from your bigger creatures and maybe a Galvanic Blast finish your opponent off or drain them for the last few points with a Disciple of the Vault. But the aggro creatures that you're really looking to take control of the game with, you have Carapace Forger, which is a 4-4 when you have Metalcraft. You have your Frogmites Enforcers, which are your cheap Metalcraft, just vanilla 2-2s and 4-4s. And then you have the Atogs, which eat artifacts to become a threat after the first few turns when you have your extra artifacts online. And so that's how you're going to win most of your games. But my version, which some of the other more aggro-centered decks don't focus on, also has a full four Disciples and then two Flings, so that you can get not necessarily random wins, but you can have more delayed wins when your opponent might have a Regenerator or just a lot of chump blockers, maybe from Squadron Hunt or something, that you can set up a lethal ATOG either with multiple disciples or with a singular fling so, so uh, it, further down the road. So it almost works like a combo win, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. If your plan A fails, you have a very reliable plan B. Okay. Um, okay, so uh, actually we'll get to the uh, strengths and weaknesses kind of as we look at all the components of the, of the deck. So what I want to do is kind of look at some of the card choices uh, that, that you have for your version and maybe compare with how some of <clears throat> the other versions work. And that way we'll, we'll actually analyze each component of the deck. So let's start with the threats. I, I'd say the core, the core threats are Frogmite and Mirror Enforcer, right? Because they're artifacts and they have affinity. Um, so they're in all the decks. Would you agree, Kyle? Yes, absolutely. Every build's going to have those. All right. So what about some of the other 
just just the beatdown options. Uh, which are the ones that you chose for your deck? So the beatdown options I chose for my deck, in addition to your Frogmites and your Enforcers, I have Carapace Forgers, which are also, I would say, in almost every single build. But then I also run the full four ATOG, which you aren't going to see necessarily at every deck. You don't run Somber Hoverguard or Quicksilver Behemoth? No, neither of the blue flyers, and I don't run the uh, the Ori- three three flyer, what, whose Be- name I'm drawing a blank on now. Oria Sun Chaser. Okay, so um, can you talk about why you chose the ones you chose and not these others? Um, so uh, just just quickly, the Summer Harbor Guard is a 3-2 flyer. It costs one blue and a whole ton of mana, but you never pay that because it's got affinity. And the same goes for the Quicksilver Behemoth, but he's just a 4-5 ground beater, and he actually has to return to your hand whenever he attacks or blocks. And uh, the Arctic Sun Chaser is a 1-1 white guy for 1 and a white mana, but he becomes a 3-3 when you have 3 or more artifacts. So you decided not to run those. Uh, so any any special reason why? Definitely. What, the, main, the main reason that the, all the builds are running Carapace Forgers and Mirror Forgers is that they dodge a large portion of the removal in the format. They're dodging your lightning bolts, they're dodging the echoing decays, the dead weights. They're, they're simply not a lot of decks main board are prepared to deal with such a large threat. Which, when you get into the 3-2 flyer and your Oriac Sun Chaser, these are guys that you might, if you're playing them out on turn two, there's a chance that your opponent's just going to be able to use a card on them that they weren't going to be able to use before. Maybe they were going to use it on a Frogmite or a Disciple, which you don't really care about having on board to begin with because your 4-4s are going to be what's hitting your opponent, not these small 2-2s and 1-1s. Okay. Uh, what about the Behemoth? Uh, he seems pretty pretty sturdy, uh, but he's not that popular. He isn't that popular. The other main reason that I'm not necessarily playing the, these other fairly large creatures is that with your main 12 to 16 threats, you're already going to be beating most of the other aggro decks for the simple fact that your guys are 4-4s four when the other decks are playing 1-1s, 2-2s, and maybe a 3-4 and Razor Golem or something. And that these decks that are playing your beh- the larger behemoths, mm-hmm. yes, they're still going to absolutely crush the aggro decks, but that's not a matchup that you need to focus on anyway because you're already favored in those matchups. One thing I have seen uh, in the decks that run uh, Quicksilver Behemoth and the Somber Hovergard is that they run uh, Rush for Knowledge. Yes, absolutely. Which is, which is as I... As I've heard it told, the reason to run those big creatures to rush is to run rush for knowledge to draw a whole lot of cards. So what's your opinion on that version of the deck? The rush for knowledge itself, when when you're casting it and, and it resolves, you're you're winning ninety five percent of the games that this happens in. But the deck that's going to resolve against that, if you're spending your whole turn probably tapping. 
in the best case, you're probably tapping four lands and a creature with the Springleaf Drum to cast this Rush for Knowledge. If you're playing against a, an aggro deck, again, it's going to resolve, but you're already winning that match. Whereas if you're playing against a control deck that's just going to counter that, like that's not necessarily how you want to be spending your turn tapping out for one spell that they're just going to one for one you with, and you know, you time walk yourself. Yeah, and you already have uh, suboptimal creatures in your deck because you want to run the rush of knowledge, rush for knowledge. Yes, absolutely. Well, all right. Thank you. Actually, um, so the the Quicksilver Behemoth I think compares to the Carapace Forger, right? Like, one well. The Behemoth, once you have enough artifacts, it's, it's fairly cheap to just keep playing him, even though he has to return to your hand after combat. And he's slightly bigger. Um, is there? Is it just just because of the fact that that he might require a little bit more at the in the early game, or that you have to continuously playing him? The fact that you prefer the Carapace Forger. Two main things are that one, you have to have a blue mana for him every turn, which you only run for blue, repeatable sources in uh, Seed of the Cyanide. You also run four Springleaf Drums, but it's suboptimal to be tapping a creature to be playing a creature every turn. But the main reason is that almost every hand where you have a Carapace Forger in your opening hand, you and you keep that hand, you're going to be able to drop him turn two. Whether it be off of a Springleaf Drum and the Frogmite and the Carapace Forger, or just Tree of Tails and the Carapace Forger, you're going to be playing a 4-4 on turn 2. The Behemoth, if you're casting it on turn 3, it's a good draw. You know, most of the time, these decks, they're spending turn 2 casting uh, either a Forger or a Sun Chaser. They're spending 3 maybe casting a Mirror Forcer, and then finally on turn 4, they're dropping this big 4-5. Okay. Okay, man, that's, that's cool. Um, okay, let's talk about the, I guess, combo aspect of the deck, of the threats now. So you've got your ATOG, which can, can work just as a beater, as, mm-hmm. as you already mentioned. But he also combines very well with the Disciple of the Vault. Now, not everyone runs, uh, I guess, the, the Disciple in, in their decks. I, I've seen quite a few that, that don't run it. And obviously not everyone runs Fling. Um right. So, why would you? What 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 are the benefits, and are there any? Uh, what are, what are the weaknesses? Why are people not running Disciple of the Vault? So a big weakness of the, the Disciple of the Vault, Vault, much like I said that uh, Therapist Forger and Mirror Forger dodge all the removal in the format. Disciple of the Vault is a lightning rod for all those spells that you're trying to strain in your opponent's hand, and it actually leads to a a big problem that I see, and I, even one that draw depends on your draw, but I'll have to maybe run out of Disciple turn one, you know, knowing that I'm going to be playing a Springleaf Drum turn two or something. But a lot of the uh, big problem I see is these people are running their Disciples of the Vault side, they're getting killed, and then, you know, to them it seems, oh, he's just getting one for one every time. It's a bad card. Where is and a lot of draws, you're just going to hold back a Disciple or possibly two until, you know, turn eight where you can just play the Disciple, suddenly stack for the win. Okay. So, the, I guess what you're saying is maybe the best way to play him is kind of more of a, more of a kill, um, I guess a finisher, right? You're yes. waiting for the right yeah. moment, then you play well, him. It, 
but there are definitely games where either you don't need him or you have to play him early and he dies where he he can become a bad card in a certain number of games simply because you aren't getting any mileage out of uh, a colored drop. Okay. All right. Okay. So, um, well, any any other things you might want to say about uh, threats? Yes. One interesting aspect, at least in my build, and it's not strictly mine, but most builds don't run them, is I have two main deck Clark Clan Shaman. Um, yeah. Okay. Which, for uh, any listeners, it's a red 1-1 one, one that you can sack an artifact to be a one to all non-flyers. And so, original, when just off the bat, this guy doesn't seem that great. It's most games, it's going to be a 1-1. One, one. And in, in the matchups where all it is is a 1-1, one, one, it's getting side out every time. But against uh, decks like Infect, Storm, and Goblin, if if you just draw this as a one-of, and you play it turn four, turn five, maybe, you, you just won, won the match. Or won, won that game, at least. Would you, would you say that's true, Love? Yeah. I, the Clark Clan Shaman is one of the biggest reasons why I run main deck Lava Darts in my Blue Red Storm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Which I I, is an excellent call because Lava Dart is, that is the card that counteracts your Clark Clan Shaman. Yeah, it's really, really good. Yeah. I, I, I've lost several times to a resolved main deck Clark Clan Shaman. I remember there being an epic battle between a certain Grusbus and Special Kyle in a daily where I think it was the Kyle battle. I got crushed <laughs> hard. Yeah, and that was thanks to the Clark Clark, Clark Shaman. Clark Clan Shaman. Whatever. I'm gonna go <laughs> have to go back and find this replay. Uh, you know, I play so many matches. I I remember each one, but I'm very interested in seeing. I think you drew one Clark Clan Shaman and a grand total of four or five blasts. Yeah, I'm, I'm a master. Yeah, <laughs> very good player. So I, I didn't stand a chance. I was like, oh well. <laughs> okay, so okay, so that that's well. I guess the the shaman is more of a it's it's not really a threat, is it? It's more of a way to counteract. The strategies of other decks and maybe control some some of the aggro decks, right? Slow, yeah. Slow the, yeah. down the decks that are that can be faster than Affinity, because Affinity is very fast when it gets the nuts strong. Yeah, they can be. Yeah. Okay. I've what? gotten the feeling that Affinity is a little bit clunky. Can be sometimes. Uh, yeah, I agree with that, and that brings me to the next part, which is I think the reason why it's clunky, and that's the lands. So you've you've basically got to play uh, a bunch of the artifact lands, right? Yes. Uh, Seat of Synod, True Tales, Fall of Whispers, Ancient Day, etc. Um, and so they're all different colors. So how does that uh, how does that affect you? I mean, obviously you've got to bring in your like to 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 complement the lands. You need the artifacts that give you mana filter, right? Yes. And um, I think that's probably a more a more interesting talk, because there, there's something, there are choices there. Um, 
Yes, yeah, there, there are a large number of choices for those uh, spell slots that are fixing your mana. Yeah. Um, what one one? So let, let's let's talk about those for a minute. So the, the base one that's I think in every deck. Well, there's there's two: the Chromatic Star and the Spring Leaf Drop, right? Yes. Yeah. So Chromatic Star, I think you well you when it goes into the graveyard, you get a card and you can pay one and sack it to, to get a mana of any color. And then the spring leaf drum, you just tap it and a creature and you get a mana of any color. And one card that I noticed that you put in your build is the Terrarium. Um, that, that's one I hadn't actually seen in other decks. You want to talk about that, that one as a choice? Yes. So Terrarian, it is essentially a chromatic star, except it comes in play tapped, and you pay two to get two of any combination of color. Yeah. And so the, I guess I'll talk about what other decks might be running and why I think this is comparable and may, maybe better for this specific build. Yeah. yeah, let's hear that. So for any build that is running ATOG, you, I think you want to be running Terrarian. Because it can serve two two purposes. One is that it can fix your mana, but two is that it is a cheap draw that when you're maybe a turn where you're sacking a bunch of ATOG and cycling through your chromatic stars and stuff, that when you're drawing this, you can just pay one to give your ATOG another two plus two plus two and to cycle through another card. Yeah. And on top of that, the, this comes up quite often is that it is very beneficial that unlike maybe, say, Prophetic Prism, which is uh, going to also net you a card and filter your mana, is that in one turn it can give you two different colors of mana. So very often on turn three, I might be stacking it for a black and a green, or maybe a red and a green, and drop in a Carapace Forger and a Disciple, or a Tog and a Disciple, or some, you know, some combination of one and two drops where it's going to allow you to actually get uh, almost two uses out of your man, um, mana filter because you can cast two different colored uh, threats in one turn. Okay. Yeah. And I, I guess both of these choices you mentioned, well, both the Terrarian and the Prophetic Prism are just better than the Chromatic Sphere, which is the weak version of the Chromatic Star. In the sense that yeah. it, it doesn't automatically give you a card. It only gives you a card if you sacrifice it for for its ability. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. So when you if you're sacrificing it to a, a tog or something, it, you aren't getting that draw effect, which is um, definitely not where you want to be as yeah. far as the deck's concerned. Okay. All right, so there's one card that used to be popular in Affinity decks that I just don't see anymore, and that's Lotus Petal. Do you know why they stopped using it? I personally had uh, ne have never used the card, and I do see it not even too rarely. There's definitely people running it. But the problem with Lotus Petal is that, yes, it might enable, like, you know, a turn one Frogmite or some, some quicker draws. But all it is, it, it's a land that you only get to use once, essentially, in the deck. Yeah. You, you're never going to be sacking this to Atog. You're never going to... Uh, you know, when you're 
getting the mana out of it. It isn't replacing itself or anything. It's at least in my view, it's almost close to a mulligan. Like maybe if it's in your opening hand, it's like a six and a half card hand or something. Mm -hmm. But you never want to be play, playing this. You know, playing a turn. I don't know, turn two, two threats or something, but then just be down a land. And uh, one thing to consider as well when handling cards such as the Lotus Pedal in an aggro deck is to consider how good of a top deck is it? What happens if you draw the card like turn four? Uh, usually that's... usually it's going to be a mulligan there as well. Yeah. Um, all right, so, so we finished with the mana and the, the, the filters and the ramp. Um, there's, there's a bit of card draw in Affinity, mainly in Thoughtcast, right? So that, that, one's, that one's almost blue draw two cards, thanks to the, the Affinity Clause. Uh, and that one goes into every deck. I, I think it's, it's clear that it's, it's just a, a great card in the deck. And you already talked about Rush of Knowledge. Now, have you ever seen any any versions that use Icker Wellspring? Yes. Uh, and those versions, so any version with Icker Wellspring is also going to be running your Atog. Mm -hmm. Just because it's mainly that's your most versions main stack outlet for it. And it's not, I've never tested it myself and I don't necessarily think it's a bad card. But again, if I if I have a card in in my opening hand, like all the cards I want to see, I want to be able to pick any one of those to be able to play on, you know, turn three. Maybe like Mirror Forcer's the only one that might necessarily need to wait till turn three or something to be cast. Whereas if I see this Icar Wellspring, like I'm gonna have to plan out that I'm gonna be casting something on turns one through three, and then turn four I'm finally just gonna have the, these two finally have two mana freed up to just cast a spell that, you know, will replace itself immediately, and hopefully I'll be able to get one more card out of it. But, again, I personally, that's not how I want to be spending my turn. I want to be very proactive in playing threats and applying as much pressure early as possible. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, Alright, so one more, one more group of cards, I guess, and that's the reach and the removal. So every deck has Galvanic Blast. Uh, it's the two mana for basically four damage in an affinity build. Uh, sorry, one one red mana for basically yeah. four damage in the affinity build. Uh, but you also have fling in your version of the deck. Uh, that that one does not go into all variants. Um, and I guess you you already talked about why why you use fling. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I guess I will say that fling, probably 80% of the time, you, you want to be pointing fling at your at your opponent. If you're using fling as a removal spell, which it does come up, but it's it's not a good sign if you're having to use the fling to take out uh, another creature. The, the exception to that being is maybe they're pointing a... A shattering pulse at it with buyback, where if you take, if you remove their target with your own fling, you're gonna be able to counter their spell and get into the graveyard, or something like a tendrils of agony, where you're just using it to, again, something to hinder them, 
you might be sacking a creature and taking out an opposing blocker when it isn't going to actually be a lethal fling to them. Okay. Um, actually, here's a here's something that I often find myself wondering about. Um, let's say you've got you, you didn't have a, the best draw, and you you have a board where all you have is like a four four, and the only card in your hand that, that can do anything is a fling. That's all you have, and then they 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 they, they remove your four four. They they throw something at it that's going to kill it. Do you fling it there in hopes that you'll be able to kind of recover, or do you just just wait, not use up the, the fling? The only situations I see myself flinging uh, the four for it is maybe if. There are eight or less life where the fling will put them within a galvanic blast or another fling or a four four range. Okay. Or if they're playing something like I know black rats and flings my last card in hand, where I don't want to be you know chittering rats one maybe twice in a row and you know the game's going to be over if I keep the fling in hand. Oh, okay. But I think a big suggestion I have for anyone who's interested in playing affinity or may might currently be playing affinity is that you really need to have a tunnel vision for both how you want the game to end and how, like, your most likely chance of winning. And if they're removing your final 4-4 threat, draw, flinging that and then, you know, hoping draw into another 4-4 and getting some more damage is, I think, more likely than just hoping that you draw an Atog, you know, at some point down the line and just going for the, the fling victory there. Okay. All right. So, I think this, well, this deck is pretty straightforward. Um, uh, oh, there's one card that, that sometimes pops up. Uh, the Tooth of, uh, what is it, Chisgoria? Chisgoria, yeah. yeah. Uh, that one's not in your build, but I've, I've seen it around. Um, and so it's, it's, it's just an artifact that gives a creature plus zero, plus one, I think. Uh, and it, it has Flash, too, which is very key. Yeah, and so, yeah, so it's got Flash, and it's got Affinity, right? So it can often yeah. just be put in for free. Um, so, and I assume that's just to kind of protect your creatures and give you another artifact. Uh, so why why would someone play it, and why don't you play it? I'll start with why I don't play it. And again, I don't want to be the dead horse, but Affinity already has a very good matchup against Agrodex. Your creatures are bigger. Uh, you have decent re removal for in the form of Galvanic Blast for uh, any large creature that your opponent might cast. And if you're if you have something like a uh, Scale Chesgoria in your deck, one it in your hand it it isn't actively advancing your board state. It's not a threat to the opponent. It and in a lot of matchups, it, you know, a nine creature matchup, it's also almost going to be a mulligan. And in the games, the aggro matches where you might be playing to save a creature, you should be winning that match anyway. And I'd like people to ima imagine that if that scale was just another, you know, Carapace Forger or some other threat, I'd rather just be trading my threat on board for whatever they're blocking with and not playing a scale and just playing a follow-up threat anyway. Because then in games where they don't have a blocker, you just have two threats instead of one threat and one scale. Yeah. Okay. That that, that makes a lot of sense. That actually makes a lot of sense in games uh, like in, in, in limited magic, you know, where 
those kind of things just aren't as good as a, another threat. Absolutely. Okay. So I think that's it for the deck. Uh, is there anything else you have in your notes about the composition of the deck? Uh, are we going to, I guess we'll get to the sideboard as we go through the matchups maybe? Yes. Yeah. We'll talk about the sideboard in, in just in the matchups because uh, there's, well, um, Affinity uses all colors. So it has access to every, every sideboard card that doesn't have a double, uh, double color in its casting cost, basically. Uh, so there are a lot of options, but there are some that are the best ones, right? Uh, but yeah, we'll go into that in the matchup specifically. Okay. Okay. So I want to ask you a few things about playing, playing the deck in general. Um, so first of all, what is your, your ideal hand? At game one, you don't know who you're facing. What do you want to see in your hand? Ideally, you want to either be able to, over the course of turns two and three, play like 10 power worth of guys, or have an ATOG with either a flame to go with it, or a, a disciple that's going to act as a threat. So you, in your opening hand, you very you want to be able to see how in just a couple turns you, you now have a substantial threat on board that your opponent actually has to actively deal with instead of maybe developing their own game plan. Okay. And the, yeah. And I would say that applies most to maybe like the post matchups, where if your opponent gets to spend their first few turns pondering or something instead of having the lightning bolt flame slasher guys. That that's how you're going to lose those matchups is when you allow them to develop their hand instead of take away from your your board. Okay, okay, and so well, so Luke mentioned that uh, this deck can be very clunky, and I definitely agree. When yeah. how do you know um, when to mulligan? I think mulliganing is a very important. I guess skill that you have to have for this kind of deck because it sometimes you get these really weird hands and, and it's hard to know when you're going to mulligan or not. Do you, do you just wait until you have two, at least two lands uh, or do you wait until you have like at least a land of the color that are the threats in your hand? How do you, what are the corner cases? When, when do you draw the line? So the, the having two two land rule, I think, isn't that big of an issue at all. There are very many hands that I'll keep a one lander, especially on the draw. But to keep a one lander, you're going to optimally you're going to want to be playing a springleaf drum on turn one, and then and then you either want like another cantrip in hand so that you can fix mana and play you know some threat to then get this springleaf drum online, hopefully drawn to a land. Or you're going to want, uh, like, like a frog might, where either if you draw an, a cantrip to, you know, turn three castle frog might, and then start springleaf drumming what you need. But, so, I would say springleaf drum is definitely a card that you want to see that is going to make your mulligan decision very easy. If you have a land, a springleaf drum, and, and threats, you know, with one, say one cantrip thrown in, you're you're normally good to go because you're going to. Up, it doesn't happen all the time. There's there's plenty of games where you're going to lose just because you don't hit that second land or you 
don't hit more than one colored source for the game. But if you can cast your first threat with like a Springly Thrum on board, then you're normally good to go because when you cast that first one in the same turn, you can normally cast the second one. So if they have some removal, you now have a Springlink Drum online that you can cast whatever you need for the rest of the game. Okay. So that, that, that makes sense. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and you actually kind of answered the, the, the other question about playing it, which is how, how do you play out, you know, the first few turns? How do you typically play out? And so you said that, uh, you know, just get, get the threads online, get, get the Springleaf Drum. So I, I assume then that Springleaf Drum is really a very important card for the deck. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's a card that while I'm, you know, it's just a one mana artifact that breaks even on mana. When you're playing a deck with one, a lot of affinity creatures where it's based, where it actually becomes a max. Okay. And two, where you need access to four, for some builds, five different colors of mana. You know, it, it's a, it's a city of brass. Every, every turn it's going to give you one mana of some color that you need to keep advancing the board state. Okay. Okay, cool. All right, so let's go into the matchups. So let's start with Cloud Post. So first of all, is this a... What kind of a matchup is this? Is this good? Is this bad? Uh, so there, there's two different Cloud Posts. There's blue, red, and blue, black, and they're on the opposite spot, sides of the spectrum as far as whether they're good, they're good or bad matchups for uh, me. Really? I, I'm... I'm surprised. I would, I would always expect them to be kind of similar. So let's talk about red-blue first. Okay, so the blue-red clad post, it's a pretty good matchup as long as you keep a draw that is going to be able to deploy two and uh, optimally three varied threats in the first two or three turns. The, the thing being is that their deck, it takes a while to get online. They're playing these uh, more expensive cards, Mall Drifter, uh, Mnemonic Wall, Capsize, things that are going to take them, you know, with the exception of maybe like Clad Post, Clad Post, Glimmer Post Draw. Uh, they, they're really not going to be playing these things until, you know, turn four and later. And so if you're, if you can spend your first two and three turns playing, uh, some threats where, you know, maybe they'll have a Flame Slash for a 4 4 and a Lightning Bolt for a Frog Knight. Like, if you've still stuck a 4-4 uh, Enforcer, and then you land an Atog after that or something, and so when, the, when they spent, spend their fourth turn playing a Mall Drifter, you're, you're in the driver's seat at that point, because they, they're going to have to chump lock with this Mall Drifter, they're now down to 12, maybe 8 life, then all of a sudden they're within fling range, they're within disciple range. Uh, there's a lot of, you know... You, the spells that you can now draw to finish them, you have a very high number of. Okay. I just have one thing to add on the blue red cloud post matchup, and um, that is for the blue red cloud post players is that the reason that blue red cloud post is playing electrostatic bolt instead of lightning bolt is the existence of affinity to Absolutely. be able to kill the mirror enforcers, mainly. Um, yeah, as I've seen it... most. No. Well, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, you're, you're right that it's absolutely there to kill the Mirror Enforcers, but don't think of it like, it's awesome that it becomes good in other matchups, which I think is a key to uh, Popper in general, is that you can't have your cards tuned to be one deck. It's cards like Electrostatic Bolt, where it's awesome against one deck, but then, you know, it can take out uh, 
Spire Golem? Like Spire Golem. Razor yeah. Golem? Yeah. Spire Golems, Razor Golems, or even just, you know, any any creature in white weenie for the most part. Um, fairies. It, it's good against a wide range of decks, but then it's awesome it, against Infinity. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's there for the Mirror Enforcer, but also the reason it's a Electrostatic Bolt instead of a Lightning Bolt is that there are very few creatures with three toughness. There are either two or four. Yep. Um, okay, so I was going to ask, uh, so what do you side in? What do you take out? So I side in uh, four Hydroblasts and four Pyroblasts. You know, they're, they're a blue-red deck. I'm siding in four counters for their blue spells, four counters for, the, for their red spells. And then I'm siding out uh, immediately the Clark Clan Shaman does absolutely nothing against them. I'm saying I have Galvanic Blast because their creatures, their creatures are threats. Their creatures are more utility creatures where they're getting, you know, they're, they're returning a card from their graveyard with them or they're drawing two with the creatures. The creatures themselves have a, a, a relatively minor impact on the game. So there's six right there. And then I'm also taking out two disciples simply because it dies to all their, their removal. And it, like, you, the Clyde, Clyde Post matches, with their counter spells and stuff, you want to be attacking for damage. You can't count on like a fling or a late game dropping a disciple win. You didn't say you took out the fling though, right? No, the, the both flings stay in. Okay. Uh, and that's fling is while there are matchups where it will come out, like there there's a certain subset of games where one fling will just be like a turn three, turn four win compared with an ATOG that you don't want to necessarily lose that against this deck. Because they're spending their first few turns, they're casting uh, their prophetic prisms, they're casting compulsive researches. They will, unlike other true control decks, they will be tapping out their first few turns, which will very often just leave them vulnerable to a flame. And on top of that, it helps with countering their capsizes and their shattering pulses, uh, because after board, they're bringing in uh, hydroblasts, which will take care of your ATOGs a lot of time, so you don't always have a stack outlet for your artifacts when they start to try to bounce or destroy them. Oh, okay. Oh, perfect. When I've played Blue-Red Pulse, I find Shattering Pulse to be very slow against Affinity. Has that been your experience as well? It it, it very much is. With I mean, with that being said, it it, it most of the time it like it doesn't do much to me, you know, I'll be stacking their first target and, you know, they've just one for one me. Uh, but they're, especially post-board, when, when they now have a lot more spells that are going to take care of your Aton, there's some, there are games where Shattering Pulse becomes, you know, the key card, especially when, if they go, you know, Flame Slash, Flame Slash, and you only have one threat left. Uh, they can start to take over games. But on the whole, I think, I re- I'm really not sure that Blue Red Post, that that's where they need to be is running that card. Do you think Ancient Grudge is a better sideboard card against you than, than the Pulse? Yes, absolutely. Ancient Grudge, which I run three of in my sideboard, Ancient Grudge is a much better card, uh, and even better than Gorilla Shaman, which we'll talk about a little later, probably when we get to Goblins. But Ancient Grudge is good because one, if you're like if you're on the play and casting it, uh, turn two, that could very well be slow. Could be enough to like slow down your affinity opponent 
if you're blue red, if you're a fan, you don't, you don't necessarily want to be grudging their land, but if you're the blue red deck grudging their uh, first land draft, like you just bought yourself at least a turn worth of development. You, instead of their turn two being a two two and a four four, their turn two is now land another cantrip go. Um, all right. It, it it also guarantees that you take out two targets instead of just the one guaranteed by the shattering pulse. Yeah. So, so what about the the black blue cloud post? The black blue cloud post. It's a very similar style of deck. You know, a lot of them are going to be running mystical teachings with uh with the the limited mana filtering that the deck has. Both, both versions can run the mystical teaching for various threats. But the problem against blue-black is that it's very much more tailored towards beating aggro decks, whereas blue-red is more versus the field, which if, if I was had to choose one, I'd want to be blue-red because you have more decent matchups. But blue-black, it, it, it is very good at beating those creature decks. It runs uh, edicts, it has echoing decays, which Echoing Decay is really good because a lot of games an Affinity player wants to go turn to Frogmite, Frogmite, you know, 4-4 or something. But Echoing Decay, like, it, there are times where you just can't play out that Frogmite because it, you have no other threats. If they have the Echoing Decay, they've just two-for-one you and you have, like, no more pressure on board. Um, so you say that the, the black, uh, black, well, blue black cloud post is a worse matchup? No, it, it's, it, yes, it's a worse ma matchup for me. Okay. And also it helps that they have snuff outs, which means that if I'm dropping two threats on turn two, they're playing two removal threats on turn two, and they have more card draw, so when we, if they make it to the late game, they're, they're just going to be able to deal with every one of the threats I play. Also, I assume you don't have a, as good a sideboard, right? Because yes, absolutely. I only get to bring in the uh, pyroblasts, and I believe a lot of the blue black will run Ulamog's Crusher as a finisher, which is nice because it allows me to bring in Doomblade, which I I have plenty of cards that I want to take out of the main deck. So when they allow me to bring in, you know, even Doomblade, which might be suboptimal, it's still taking out a card that it is worse than. Okay. Okay, let's go on to um, the mono blue decks. So let's start with uh, the blue Delver Tempo deck. So this is the one with the fairies, with the ninja. Uh, how good's your matchup against them? It's definitely favored, but not by a huge margin. Uh, the the main matches you're going to lose against it is when they either go like Delver flip, Delver flip. They're going to outrace you. Or if you, for some reason, this will happen a lot, say you keep a two-hander against them, and you just don't draw more. Normally against the mono-blue deck, you don't want to spend your turn to, like, if they cast uh, Cloud of Fairies and Untap, when they start one for, I guess almost two-forwarding you with a uh, uh, Spell Stutter Sprite, that that's how you're going to be losing those games is when you're allowing them to counter your two drops with their spell stutter sprites 
And that's actually a huge mistake I see affinity players making is that they're playing out threats turn two like they're used to in every other matchup. But in this matchup, you actually want to go land, land, or like land, uh, one drop artifact, land, land, and then have a turn where you play like Frogmite, which if they counter it, then you're free to go, you know, Carapace Forger, Atog, or if you, you know, if they let it resolve, then you might play a Carapace Forger, which if they counter it, you play Atog. Or if they let your first two resolve, expecting to counter a third one, then you just have to turn because you, you now have six power on board versus, you know, maybe they have a flip Delver or something. So this is definitely something where your whole game plan just completely changes based on the matchup because you now just want to play as many spells in the turn as possible because you can cast those three spells in a turn while on their three mana they can only cast one. Okay. So, so you want to just consider more just... Uh, developing your mana first if, yeah. if they have untapped mana. Right. Like if they're spending, you know, their turn two casting a Ponder or Phantasmal there, then by all means just, you know, play out all the threats you can. But when you give them the option of just one for one in you, uh, like you, you've just passed the turn, only you now have one less threat to cast for the turn where you can cast multiple threats. Okay. Do you, do you want to be playing around days in the first few turns? Days it's, before Spike? Magic Online is really nice in that you can see replays and kind of know if they're playing or not. Yeah. But normally, I normally find myself in a situation where, if, especially if I'm on the play, so they, you know, they, their turn one, they cast Ponder or they cast Elva or something. My turn two, if, if I'm spending casting a two drop and they're returning an island, I'm I'm normally happy with it if they have if they have in their hand. Like I I don't really mind them setting their man in behind because then next turn they're replaying an island and now they just have no counter spells for when you play your two threats next turn. Okay. Okay. So, um, is there well obviously you're citing uh, pyroblast, right? Is there anything yes. else that's good against them? Yes. Uh. Your ancient grudges normally you want to sign in two because most builds will be running the spire golems. Okay. Which ancient ancient grudge is awesome because it's something that you can't really counter unless okay. you only have one grudge and they have like two spire golems where they know if they're going to counter uh, one grudge you're only going to be able to kill one golem. But if if they're countering it and you're just flashing it back to then kill kill their two four. They're pretty much down to card at that point. Yeah. And, and so for that matchup, I'm siding out Quark uh, Clan Shaman, which there are, it happens every once in a while, you know, they'll go turn one Delver, turn two Delver, and I'll just play Quark Clan Shaman turn two and they'll concede. But uh, post sideboard, you want to be siding out your uh, Shaman and then your Disciples too, again, just because with how much control they have. You aren't going to be able to count on resolving one late game, and you aren't going to be able to be swinging through their Phantasmal Bears, their Flip Delvers, things like that with your Disciple. So you're taking out two Shamans uh, for Grudges, and then oftentimes you'll be bringing in two Doom Blades for two of your Disciples, just because it, it's, you know, they, they aren't a threat-heavy deck, and especially when you're bringing in four counter spells, you can, you can kind of play towards that late game, uh, where you're both going to be, you know, countering one or two spells, only you're going to have more threats on board and hopefully removing theirs. Okay, so uh, 
a, a very similar deck, but different in strategy, is the Mono Blue Control. So Mono Blue Control is a pretty good matchup for Affinity. Oh yeah, that that's that's the experience you do felt. Do you agree? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Especially, uh, like, post-sideboard when you can spend your, like, even if uh, you're spending your turn three casting uh, a 4-4 four, four and they go to spell stutter it, like, you can just have the pyroblast and suddenly they're, they're really far behind. Because they were planning on just holding back the spell stutter until they got some value out of it. But now they're getting no value out of it and you resolve your threat instead of them just being able to counter spell it or something. But let, let me stop you there for a second. Um, so I wanted to, to kind of focus, well, Spellstar Sprite is more in the kind of the tempo-oriented decks. Yeah. But when I say Mono Blue Control, I'm kind of talking more about the... They the, don't even the, have that card. Yeah, yeah <laughs> the counter-heavy decks. They they only have, like, like you know, the, the, the deck that New Plan Paul Denton runs, which okay, only has, yeah. like, Spire Dollar. Okay, they acknowledge things like that. Yeah. So this this also, also known as one in a blue time walk yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, how, how I, does the matchup change there? Do you still feel that you've or maybe you've got an even better matchup? It's still a good matchup, but how it plays out definitely changes. Simply because you don't need to be you need to be more worried about giving them time to get the three mana where they can like exclude a creature and get value. Instead of, say, you know, having a spell setter. So if you're spending, like, against these decks, you do want to be playing your creatures early if you can. Simply because you don't want to, you, you really want to limit the value that your opponent can get out of, uh, whatever, whatever spells they're casting. Uh, although I do think it, it is a better matchup for them. Because again, the, like, mono blue fairies where they're really creature oriented, Again, you're you're winning these these uh, your creatures are better. So if they they want to race, you're going to win. But the decks that are just focusing on controlling the game, they're more they're more developed to you know handle the creatures because they aren't looking to trade for them. They're looking to bounce them. They're looking to exclude them. Whatever. So, Dime, I think he doesn't agree that it's a good matchup. Uh oh. I think he's saying that you just didn't, didn't know how to play the deck. And I'm just a love, noob. Yeah, you're a noob. <laughs> so you, you feel that, that it actually has a, uh, Kyle, you feel it has a, um, a slight, like, that actually, that mono blue control has a slight edge over affinity? No, I, I think, if it, I think mono blue control is better than, uh, like fairies, but, at least going into a match, I I do know I'll be you know favored against a blue deck. Whether that's because maybe pilots aren't the best, I I can't be positive of that. But uh, like I, if I'm going into a round, I will be happy when they tell me that that I'm playing uh, mono blue. Okay, okay, sounds good. Okay, let's go into uh, Love's territory here. Uh, Grixis and Blue Red Storm. So let's start with the just the Grixis Storm. I think those are Kyle's favorite matchups, by the way. Just a side note. Oh yeah. No, Grixis won, as far as I know. So, so Grixis and Blue Red, they're, they're you know they're both looking to accomplish the same game plan. They're going to storm out through various means and either grape shot you for a lot or 
put out a whole lot of 1-1 Goblins. Uh, Grixis, I, I'm definitely not, not favored in, and that it helps against Blue Red Storm in that they're playing Islands and Mountains, which are only going to be capping for one mana. And so when I Hydroblast or I Pyroblast a spell, like I'm spending one mana to take out two, maybe three of their ma- the mana production for their turn. But against Grixis, you know, if they just go land, 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 and sack for six, like I can't counter a spell until I go to counter their Bushwhacker or something. And even then, if they have the Dispel or the Pyroblast or whatever, you know, I, I just lose at that point. Okay. Uh, well, Blue, Blue Red Storm also has a version that, which is actually the one that Love used to use, uh, which uses the Depletion Lands from yeah. Mercari Masks. So I guess that, that gives you the same kind of disadvantage. Um, it, is the fact that Blue, Ars, uh, Blue Red Storm only uh, dependent on, on the goblins uh, any kind of advantage for affinity? Like Yes, that that is a pretty uh, big advantage. Uh, just because, again, main deck, you, you're running two cards that, you know, if they're not playing uh, Lava Dart or something, and you just drop turn one Goblin, Car uh, Clan Shaman, you, you know, that's pretty much game from there on out. But then, also, Grape Shot, you have no way to counter, like, any part of that. Whereas if they're game two, they're trying to storm out and then bushwhacker. Like you can hold back the car clan shaman the whole time, counter a bushwhacker, then just drop, drop the shaman and wrap them. Whereas grape shot, you you have to normally aim for a ritual or something with a counter spell. But then even then, you know if they if they still manage to cast another ritual, you you just add it to their storm count. Yeah. So is there anything you can? You can sideboard in against the Grixis Storm, other than your your counter spells and well, I, do you sideboard in both both sets of of the blasts, like the Pyroblast and the Hydroblast, or just so, Hydroblasts come in one hundred percent of the time, uh, just because it hits you know rituals, it hits uh, lava darts, it hits bushwhackers. The Pyroblasts come in if they're either running. Uh, well, I guess Grixis won't be running Gush, but if Grixis is running Ideas Unbound, and especially when they're running Ideas Unbound where they're splicing, uh, what's the splice ritual? Desperate Ritual. If they're splicing Desperate Ritual and you can Pyroblast that spell, that, I mean, that normally stops them from going off right there. But if they aren't running uh, Ideas Unbound, then normally you leave the Pyroblast sideboard, or you're only bringing in two just because you, you do have a lot of cards to take out that aren't good against them. Okay, and I guess there aren't any... Are there any other cards that Affinity could use against uh, against the Storm deck? Not, not, that, not that I personally run my sideboard. The only other cards on the sideboard, I have the I have two card clan shamans that are coming in for, for the full four. Mm-hmm. But then I the only other cards besides the two different blasts are Doom Blades and Ancient Crutches, which aren't good against them. Okay, and, in that matchup, I'm taking out the Galvanic Blasts because you have no targets for them, uh, and the Flings because if you like, if you don't have a lethal Atog to attack with, that really doesn't help you to have a lethal Fling because it isn't like they're going to have a blocker for your Atog. Um, if they haven't stormed out, just kill them with Atog, and if they haven't stormed out, you're dead already. 
What about uh, Duress? I've seen some people side in Duress against uh, Storm in Affinity Builds. Duress, I... I've... I've... Affinity sides in Duress, the ones that run, they side in against a lot of decks, including in the mirror match of Affinity itself. Um, Lowe could probably give you a better idea of how good this actually is against them. But most matches, again, I want to be playing at threats. If I'm spending my turns duressing them, like, instead of increasing my clock by a turn, all I did was get, was set myself kind of back a clock on a turn. They're going to have another draw. And while their draw is probably going to be below the worth of the card you just duress, they have so many, uh, cantrips and card draw anyway when they're going off that they're going to hit what they need most of the time. Yeah, I'm just gonna say that Kyle is absolutely right. The only deck that can that that dress is good in against Storm is the Mono Black Control because they need to destroy your entire hand for this card to be good. Okay. Uh, just a dress from a random aggro deck is not going to do much. Okay, all right, that makes sense. So I guess in general, Storm is just just a bad matchup for. Well, it's 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 relatively uh, tilted towards Storm. Yes, yeah. and especially Grixis. Uh, it helps that they have the uh, Black Ritual, which is another... It's one mana, but netting them two, and you can't even counter that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when, you know, they're mana, mana morphosing and uh, chromatic starring and all that, uh, it's just it's an uncounterable ritual that gets them up to the mana they need to go off. Whereas just the blue-red ones, you have a much better chance, because if you have, like, two Blast in hand, you know, you, you side into eight, so if you just draw two of them, you can normally hit two key spells while they're going off, and a lot of the time that's going to be enough to uh, take the game. Yeah, okay. All right, it, it's not It's not an affinity's favor, I don't think. Okay. Well, let's let's move on to a more happy happy matchup, I think. Uh, Goblins. So, what's this match like? So, game one is pretty easy. Again, they're, you know, they're playing out quickly, a lot of 1-1s, a lot of 2-2s, and then some guys, you know, Mog Funkies is 3-3, but then they're playing their Goblin Sledders that are going to be making these guys, their guys bigger. But you're just playing out guys that are bigger. Uh, your, your Forgers and Forcers, if you're dropping two of these, you know, on turn, if you play one turn two, one turn three, it's pretty much making them sit back and not attack. And you have, you know, you have thought casts and you have cantrips that are going to be able to dig further than them. And if you don't get to the point where either you draw a, a car clan shaman just to wrap them and then start beating them with 4-4s, or you don't draw a tog and they have to jump every turn, or an atog fling just to, you know, fly over them for the win, uh, game one is pretty tough for goblins. Okay. Um, what about after sideboard? So after sideboard, uh, you get to bring in four hydro four hydroblasts, and then you can all you also bring in two more car clan shamans, which are just phenomenal against them. Mm-hmm. And you're taking out four disciple of the vault because a one one's not going to do anything, especially when they have death. You're never going to swing with it. They have death sparks to kill it. Uh, it's just not good against them. And then you're taking out flings just because you have nothing else you can take out. You want all your creatures, you know, to trade and to block with. 
and you want your galvanic blast to as your target removal. Uh, so after Borg, though, a lot of Goblins decks they're running Gorilla Shaman, which yeah. I, I want to give a little thought on gob, Goblin Shaman or Gorilla Shaman. I excuse yeah, me. Yeah, Gorilla Shaman. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted so, to ask you, how afraid are you of that card? I, if they're dropping it turn two, and I don't have a Hydroblast or I don't have a Galvanic Blast, I'm afraid. If they're dropping it on any other turn, or if I do have those on turn two, then I, I'm normally just not worried about it. Okay. Uh, I covered this a little bit. Uh, I was not sure back when we did a podcast on Goblins. And I I played some goblins, and I actually went away from the Mox Monkey, from the Gorilla Shaman, yeah. to Smash to Smithereens instead. Because as you say, Mox, uh, the, 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 the Gorilla Shaman has to come down on turn one or two. Otherwise, it's going to do nothing. Yes. And, and on top of it, on top of that, your Smash to Smithereens, it's advancing your game plan that even if you draw it late and you're just, you know, blowing up a land for three points of damage, that's good. And there's, you know, five other matchups where you're going to be able to side this thing in and get some value out of it. Yeah, Fire well, Golems and Serrated Arrows and all that jazz. Yeah, ra- Razor Golems, uh, any deck running the uh, Bone Splitters, there's, there's plenty of different targets for it. Yeah, exactly. And Gorilla Shaman does nothing against those decks. <laughs> yeah. And if you draw a Gorilla Shaman late game, I mean, you've wiped out my lands, but I'm still, you know, I, I have indestructible lands. There's, uh, you know, plenty. You yeah, can't take out your Mirror Enforcers, your Frog Mites. It's an underwhelming card when drawn late. I imagine that's probably why the price of Gorilla Shaman has gone down. It's gone down from like five ticks to just over two ticks these days. It's, it's I, actually, yeah. Yeah. No, Grill Shaman's not where you want to be uh, in the popper format, I don't think. Quick question. Oh, yep, go ahead. Uh, so I've noticed some affinity decks that run Scar in the sideboard. It, are you familiar with that card, first of all? Yes, uh, minus one, minus one for a not roll mana, red-black. Right. Um, and I was thinking that that was, you know, in people's sideboards for a card like Gorilla Shaman. Is that the case, and they're just kind of overestimating that card, or is that for something else? I think it probably is in there. I, I was never positive myself, but I don't think any of those sideboards that are running things like Scar are running, like, Hydroblast, where Hydroblast, you know, it, it does the same thing. It, it, in fact, just stops a Gorilla Shaman before it even comes into play. But again, you want cards that can come in in multiple matchups and and do multiple things within one game. With Scar, you know, takes out like maybe eight of Goblin's important creatures, and that's it. Well, I, I actually think uh, Scar. I, I think it puts a, a minus one counter, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so okay. that's pretty useful against Infect and Stompy, where their way to counter that would be with a, a pump spell. So if you do it on your turn. Uh, pump spells won't really help. It's going to kill their creatures. And it, it's also useful against other, uh, a few other things. 
I could see it against Nightscape Familiar being pretty good. Yeah. That but, that Nightscape Familiar is a problem for Affinity for sure. Okay. So I was going to say, um, so you'd say that Goblins is just generally a, a good matchup? Sounds like it yeah. is. Uh, you're going to get a majority of the game ones, which puts you on the draw game too, and you, there there are definitely times where you're going to play uh, Land Go and they're going to play Grill Shum and blow it up. But, you know, those those games are pretty small. And then on the play game, game three, you know, you're just going to outrace them. And if you have Clark Clan Shaman at any time, uh, it's normally enough to give you time to develop the board. Okay. Cool. Um, all right, so let's move on to the next matchup. And that's the one I just mentioned. That would be Infect. So Infect, I think it's a, a good matchup, but it, it it's not a skill-intensive matchup at all. It's almost a coin flip as to are they going to get the turn to maybe three win, and are you going to draw enough Galvanic Blast, Clark Clan Shaman, Slings, uh, and four fours to just stop their initial rush until they're out of creatures and you have a four four that swings for twenty points of damage. Oh, okay, so it's it's all about just stopping them, stopping their initial rush, and, yes. and that's it. And right? again, main main deck one of your best cards against them is Clark Clan Shaman because it allows you like if you drop that guy turn one and then followed up with a cantrip or something, they can never pump their 1-1, because if you're just sacking the cantrip in response to a pump spell, and then they do another pump spell and you sack a land or something, or possibly another cantrip, you, normally that's going to be enough to kill their guy, and they've just used a lot of their pump trying to, you know, get damage through. But again, they'll never do that just because they have to sit there attacking for 1, which will give you time to play some four fours until finally on your own turn you'll just sack three artifacts in a row to a Clark Clan Shaman, you know, kill off multiple guys and get multiple pump spells out of their hand. Oh, okay. So if if you were to do that in the first few turns, isn't that a little risky because that'll leave you without any lands? It it can be risky. Uh and you know if you have no more lands in hand, it it's not always the best option, but against in fact, that's often just what you have to do to give yourself the best chance at winning is keeping them off, uh, you know, lethal pump for any creature. Okay. All right. Like, yeah, just sitting back and, and uh, giving them time to, you know, get more pump spells or get multiple creatures or maybe a, uh, the one one that can regenerate, you know, through a few activations. That's how you're going to lose those games, I think. Okay. All right. So is there any sideboard tech for this? Yes. Other than more So you're signing out your four disciples because all their guys are going to be able to pump. You know, the best you're going to do is just chump a guy one time, and that, and you're going to one for, for one of them, but they're still going to have a creature. So you're taking out four disciples, and you're taking out your two flings simply because... It's pretty rare that you're going to be at a point in the game where, one, you have a lot of mana mana up and creatures on board, 
and two, that they, they're still like attacking into your creatures. Because normally if you have a big guy that can take, that when paired with flank can take down a creature, they aren't just going to be swinging into that guy. So you're taking out your uh, disciples and flings, and you're bringing in, one sec, let me bring up my sideboard. You're bringing in two, your two more card clan shamans, two doom blades, which, you know, aim for all their guys to kill them. And then you're bringing in two ancient grudges, which take out their, uh, the artist infect guy. So we can help me out with that name. Acre Clomir. Yes, And the grudges aren't, aren't the best against them, but again, you're taking out cards that are going to do absolutely nothing. And so you might as well bring in the grudges just because they do something against them. And when your grudge is taking out two Acre Clomirs, you're going to be winning those games. Okay. But it, the whole matchup is just about playing very defensive early on. Like, there's very few matches where you're going to feel that you can sneak in a couple points of damage early. It's better just to sit back. Uh, and I'm, you asked me, you know, sacking with Prog Clan Shop, is that going to leave you a will on land? The thing, same thing comes up with Atog. Like, if you're dropping Atog turn two and you have the cantrip on turn one, it's very often the point where they're swinging into it, and you're going to stack the cantrip, they're going to pump their guy, and you're going to stack down to one land two just to kill off their infected guy. Because they're now passing the turn because they cast a spell to pump their guy. And so you want to leave them on zero guys and be the next one to cast a creature. You, you always want to be a uh, minimum one creature up on them if possible. Hmm. Okay. All right. Um, so... What about a similar deck to infect uh, Stompy? So that one's a little bit slower, but has more reach. Yes. They, they, they're very similar in that they're, they're playing out cheap green guys and then have good pump to finish you off. But you're, you're right in that it takes them longer to kill you because your life total starts at 20 instead of 10. You, you have more life against them, but their creatures are better, and uh, they have better utility creatures. Well, Infect doesn't have utility creatures except Ratwolf. But Mono Green, it has a Shinin of Life's Roar, which allows them to just build up an offense until one turn they can just swing in with everything and everything's got block, has black Shinin, which helps in some matchups, I'd assume. And then they also have Carrion uh, Ranger to untap, you know, Young wolves, things like that, so they can get in for a little bit of damage and then untap them to have a good blocker back on defense. So it definitely has more reach as a deck. Uh, game game one against them is it isn't a great matchup, but it is slightly in Affinity's flavor favor just because their four power guys are all, are going to come from rancors and pump spells, which are going to take you know two spells. Where your four, four power guys are already four, four powered. And on top of that, they're running things like Rancor and Pump Spells, which Galvanic Blast does an excellent job of getting two for ones very often out of them. And then main deck Card Clan Shaman, again, it's a deck that it isn't as awesome against because their guys are all going to be, for the most part, minimum two toughness. And they, they have decent pump. But it, it is a solid card against them in that you can sack two art, you know, an artifact and a frog might, and they're going to be left with just a couple guys that they choose to save. And then when you follow up with a four fort, you're normally in a pretty good position. 
right, so game game one against them, it, it isn't too bad of a matchup. And it, your ATOG's an all-star against them. It doesn't matter how much pump they have. If they're using all their pump to try to kill your ATOG and you're second down to just a couple artifacts, they now have, you know, a few creatures and nothing in hand. And you still have an ATOG that is going to be able to chump or they have to chump as needed. After sideboard, which you, you'll be bringing in two card clan shamans and two doom blades, and you're taking out the disciple of the vault, just they, they aren't that great in these creature matchups. They get access to one of the better sideboard cards against Affinity, which is Gleeful Sabotage. It is one in a green destroy target artifact that has Conspire. So very often they'll play out a, uh, two green one drops and their turn three is blowing up like a frogmite and a land or a frogmite mirror force or even just land land if you haven't really developed your board set to that point. Like if you're spending your first two turns playing land land atog and also then they're gleeful sabotaging you, uh you it's very hard to come back from a gleeful sabotage. Okay. Uh, yeah, is that is everything from that all right? Yeah, yeah. I was actually going to ask you: Is there any card that you're afraid of? <laughs> but that's that is exactly it. Yeah, Leaf Sabotage is is the card that they really have that does a great job of doing what it needs to do. W- would you say it it um, it shifts the the matchup to in their favor, or is it not enough? Yes, I would. I think post board games are definitely in their favor. Um, again, not by a lot. Your creatures are better and. It's a it's a very close matchup in, in that if one player is playing tighter than the other, I think it's always going to go in the better player's favor, or at least a lot of the time. But if you both have an average draw and you're playing a similar opponent, I think they're going to be winning a lot of sideboard games if it when they're drawing their gleeful sabotage because it's uh, such a good super one. Okay, okay, that's good to know. All right. Um... So let's go on to the next matchup. Now you you had actually mentioned this one before. So mono black control. Uh, you said that this is actually a bad matchup for affinity. Yes, mono black control. Mono black in general is very geared towards winning creature creature matchups. They run tons of removal and they run good, good removal at that. They run guts verdicts, which you know kills a four four if it's your only thing. They have snuff outs, they have crypt rats, they have a lot of spells that just deal with every one of your threats. And on top of that, they have dead weights, which are, they deal with ATOG, you know, unconditionally. The best you can do is sack an artifact and chump with ATOG one turn if needed. And also, as an aggro deck, Affinity runs less creatures than every, every other aggro deck. Like, you're running, Pretty much 16 actual threats of creatures, whereas Mono right, White runs something like 32 creatures. Mm-hmm. So their removal becomes very good against you because they're going, they, every time almost, they can one for one you with the removal. The matches that you're going to win are where you drop like Forger, uh, Forger and Enforcer within the first three turns, and they can only take out two of those before you drop, you know, Frogmites and Disciple the Bolts to Sector Death Verdicts and stuff. Uh, but in general, it's just a very tough matchup because you don't have enough creatures in your deck to deal with all their removal. Okay. So how do you, how, uh, how can the sideboard help in this matchup? 
my sideboard personally, I I don't side in anything. Oh. Uh, again, my sideboard is very much geared towards helping in the matchups that I can't help. Uh, it makes Storm winnable, which a lot of the Finny builds. You know, if you're signing a dress for Storm, that you're you're going to be uh, losing. So I'm si- I'm signing in cards to help with a lot of matchups that were close. But this mono black that isn't really a close matchup, like you you just have to hope that you're going to get those three four four draws and win out from there. It also helps that personally, I don't think mono black's that great of a deck. So later rounds in tournaments, you don't you don't really need to be seeing you won't be seeing it much if you're in a winning position. Which if you aren't, then it doesn't really matter anyway. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's a. I'm kind of a meta game strategy, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the one one card that you could cite in would be a Circle Protection Black, which they have a very hard time beating. But it's only good against that one deck. And while they have a hard time beating it, you're going you're going to have a hard time beating them, them because you can't just build up a hand and wait for an Atog fling. Because they have Chittering Rats, they have Ravenous Rats, you, you don't have time to, and you w- won't have a hand to just sit back on. Okay. Alright. Let's move on to Dime Collector's favorite, uh, White Weenie. Finally. <laughs> Whose uh, favorite is this? Uh, Dime. Alright. Uh, game 1 versus White Weenie, it really depends on the build. I think a good shift for a lot of uh, White Weenie players recently has been the inclusion of uh, Lockkeeper. Stank... What's that? Oh, I thought you were going to say Lawkeeper. Uh, Law Lawkeeper, it's it's all right, but it only locks down one four four. So if you're dropping two four fours, a lot of times the they're going to be chumping, or they're just going to be taking four every turn and eventually lose. And if you have a Galvanic Blast or something, then it, like they're, they're if they're passing the turn uh, with a Lawkeeper and not casting something because they, they aren't going to have a spare white, and you're just Galvanic Blasting at the end of the turn, uh, I've won a lot, of, a lot of games that way just because if you lock down their one threat, it's good, but if they have multiple threats, it can be tough for you to win when one of your you now replace an offensive threat with a defensive creature. Uh, but the card I was going to mention is Sanctifiers. I forget what the first core Sanctifiers. It is two and a white with a one white picker. Maybe is, am I correct on this? Yeah, that's right. Two and a white for one white with one white kicker for two three. If you pay the kicker when it comes in, it destroys target artifact or enchantment, which I really think it's good to have one or maybe two for uh, white weenie players in the main deck, just because most decks these days have a good target for those. Whether it's Tortured Existence or a Razor Golem or a Spire Golem, uh, there's a lot of good targets. And on top of that, you're getting a 2-3 body which is decent in the creature matchups. Decks that are playing the uh, Course Sanctifier main deck are pretty good because it's so, you know, it takes out a Mirror Enforcer or something and provides provides a decent-sized body that 
your Frogmites can't attack into. Your Atogs are going to have to uh, stack to at least kill it. Uh, and it, so it's always going to be a two, if not a three for one in some form versus affinity. And I think it's good enough that in other matchups, you'll get enough value out of it that much like I run card, card clinch on main, I think this is a card that if you're running it main, you're just going to steal some random uh, game ones that you wouldn't have won before. But, but then builds that aren't running that game one, you're, you're pretty favored. Same, same reason you have decent removal and your creatures are bigger than their one ones, their two, two flyers or two, three flyers. You get into trouble if they have multiple Rager Golems and you had to waste your, like your removal spell early on a 2-2 or something and they drop multiple Rager Golems because then you're going to be trading a Forger or an Enforcer for a 3-4. And then the next turn, you're going to be trading a 4-4 for their other Rager Golem and they're going to throw in like a, a Squadron Hawk or something to finish off your 4 But... Barring those draws and barring draws where they have double or triple uh, journey to nowhere, game one is is pretty good for you. Plus, you just have the because there's so much trading going on. There's normally time that you can just draw the Atog Fling combo in the late game and and win from there. What about Bone Bone Splitter? Uh, does that does that give what we need an edge when it's on the board? Yeah. What about that, Kyle? Yeah. <laughs> Because that makes all their threats kind of as big as yours, almost. No, no it definitely does. Uh, and late, late game Bone Splinter matters a lot more because they can throw it on their uh, Guardian of the Guild Pack, which Guardian of the Guild Pack is another card that's good against you. But normally, like, it's almost better if they're dropping a Squadron Hawk and maybe a... Uh, the 2-2 two, two that comes back is 1-2-1. One, one. I know we already discussed him. The Loyal Cathar. Loyal Cathar. Yeah, Loyal Cathar. That's almost better because if they're spending their fourth turn dropping uh, Guarding the Guild Pack, the most it's normally going to do is it's going to block your Atog and make you sack an artifact to it while your other 4-4 four, four gets in or something. But those that can definitely become good late game where they're going to be getting a lot of you're going to be getting two for ones in the form that, like, they'll have a squadron hawk with a bone splitter and another squadron hawk uh, blocking your four four. If you're coming off two of their guys, but again, it's a squadron hawk, so you know it was a free card for them anyway. But early game, if they're one, if they're spending their like turn one dropping a bone splitter instead of a guy that's going to be able to chump early when they need it, or if they're spending, say, they spend their turn two, like turn one, uh. Ication Javelinier, turn two, Squadron Hawk, which comes up a lot, and then turn three, equip the Squadron Hawk so that they now have a 3-1, and then the Ication Javelinier that can shoot into a 4-4. If you're just uh, bolting their guide end of turn, or like playing Clark Clan Shaman to get their Javelinier out of the way and give, give you them no value out of that, uh, then they're often very far behind, just because they're having to take some swings from 4-4s. And they're never actually going to get ahead of you on creatures, really. Their their whole plan needs to be to stabilize with Guardians late game. So if they're spending their early game trying to play defense, but then failing to play defense, it's not so good for them. 
Okay, so what about after uh, sideboarding? They can bring in Dust to Dust, I think. Yes. That sounds like it's pretty dangerous. Dust to Dust, it's a two white and one remove two target artifact from the game. It's a lot like the Gleeful Sabotage we talked talked about, mm -hmm. except that it, it costs more, which is a significant problem because in green, in the... In a, the Stompy decks that we talked about, they can Gleeful Sabotage, but then they can oftentimes, you know, on turn, they, they have to play out two creatures. They're casting Gleeful Sabotage on turn three. So they can either follow up with another threat, or they can untap something with the, say they only had two land, they can now untap something with a Kyrian Ranger, mm -hmm. attack with that, then replay the land, get another threat. So they're really far ahead at that point. Dust to Dust is definitely good. Most most games need to draw multiple. If they draw multiple, you you just automatically lose for the most part. But if they only draw one, it's normally not that great of a one for one. Um, and a lot of times, I think people misuse it. Turn three, they'll try to hit two lands, then you you know play more lands and more threats. If they're waiting to get some value out of it with uh, maybe hitting a frog in a land or an enforcer in a land, that's probably better for them. But it, it just doesn't have the same effect that Gleeful Sabotage does in that they they aren't also threatening you while uh, playing this card. They're removing your pressure, but they're applying no pressure themselves, and so you, you both have more time to, to develop. Okay. It's not a card you want to see cast against you, but it's, it's not game over by any means. And, and what can you bring against them? So you bring in two Doomblades, which are pretty awesome against them. Again, you want to be taking out creatures that their bone splitters are on and stuff. But then your by far best card that you're bringing in against them is you're bringing in three Ancient Grudges, which takes out their Razor Golems, and it takes out the bone splitters before damage. So they, they go to trade with your guy, and all of a sudden they're down a bone splitter, and they're down two guys that they were trying to trade with your one guy for, and you still have your guy. Uh, and you now have an ancient grudge in the yard to flashback later on. <laughs> and you're taking out, uh, your Clark Clan shamans just because all their guys either fly or they, they have more than two toughness. You don't want to be wrapping your own in addition to, in, in addition to theirs. And you're taking out, uh, one of your, no, you're taking out three of your disciple of all just because it, uh, they all die to vacation. You have ears and you don't want to give them that free value out of their javelin ears. Yeah, it's really okay. in their javelin ears, and all of a sudden, all they have to point at are four fours and frog mites. They're pretty much down the card. Well, you know what, Kyle, you are such a great guest. You've actually already pretty much answered the questions I was going to ask, but I will kind of modify them to to get a little more information out of you. So, uh, the first question is about dust to dust. Um, the first part of the question is how often do mono white players go after your lands with that? Because you already kind of explained that it's sometimes not effective, but is that usually the route that they're they're going to attack you with that card? If it is in their opening hand, over fifty percent of the time for sure, uh, they're just going to spend their turn three dust to dusting two lands. If they draw it late game, if it, you know it normally occurs to them, oh, I can take out his creatures at this point. But early game, it never seems like they realize that if they wait, that they're going to be able to hit some better targets with their dust to dust. Um, yeah, that's a good point. I've I've had some cases. It's not, 
you know, I haven't played it enough to really say, but there's some cases just based on what's in my hand, I can tell, like, you know, if I curve out, I have a one drop and a two drop, depending what the affinity player's board is. Sometimes I can just say, um, or just presume that, yeah, I knock out these two lands now. It's going to put me ahead that, that much tempo. The rest of my hand I'm curving out with that I, it's enough of an advantage to do it. Um, but the second part of my question is, you, you've been bringing up some good points about, you know, how to build a sideboard in general, and you like to have cards that can affect multiple matchups in multiple capacities. So with Dusted Us being so narrow, do you think that it might be the case that mono-white players should not even be playing it in their sideboards to begin with? I haven't played mono-white that much, but I think it very well might be the case. Much like we talked about Gorilla Shaman, uh, being only really good against Affinity, even then not that great. If your sideboard card, such as Dust Dust, is only coming in one matchup, and even then it isn't just winning that matchup, I don't think it should be there, especially in a for- format as diverse as Popper, where you aren't going to be even guaranteed to see the deck that you're sideboarding against. Okay, and my second question, and I don't know if you'll be able to answer this or not, but uh, you kind of already did. Um, I was just wondering if, you know, based on the, the mono-white decks you faced, are there any players or, like, specific builds that you think are the best? And I know you did kind of answer that already, but did you have anything else to speak, to say on that issue? Yes. So I, I already mentioned, mentioned I think Core Sanctifiers is pretty good, especially now with, you know, Torture Existence running around, uh, which I'm sure will be becoming relatively big after this uh, popper premiere event win by it. Uh, I, one card that I don't necessarily like in most builds are the Icacian Javelineers. And that Icacian Javelineers, they're just a 1-1 that sometimes if your opponent has a one toughness creature, you're going to get more value out of. I think you'd be better off playing another evasion, evasion creature like the, uh, the white, white, the 2-2 flyer. He, uh, can anyone help me out on that name? Sure. Leon and Skyhunter. Yes, Leonid Skyhunter. It seems like a really vanilla creature, but as Mono White, through your combination of Guardian of the Guild Patcher, uh, Core Skyfisher, uh, maybe your Benevolent Bodyguard giving a guy protection from something for a turn, like you're going to be winning through evasion creatures for the most part, not through casting in a, a Javelinier that isn't going to do much in a lot of the, a lot of the matches. So I think if you're a Mono White player, you, you want to be aiming for creatures they're going to be reliably able to get in damage or do something to significantly set back a lot of other decks. Like, uh, Suture Priest is really good for them just because it can, it hurts, uh, Storm a lot. In addition to against creature decks, it's going to be draining them for minimum two, three points of damage. Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. So, yeah, Kyle is really good at explaining things. I don't really have any questions at all. (laughs) All right. So we've got uh, three more matchups I wanna I wanna look into, but the, these last two I just wanna kind of rush over them. So familiar storm, is this a good or bad matchup? First of all, it's it's a bad matchup just because decks that can beat familiar storm are very good at beating familiar storm, and decks that don't beat it, kind of like the mono black matchup. If, if you're gonna have to dedicate a large portion of your sideboard. To beating the, to winning the matchup and 
again, what's as diverse as it is, you can't concentrate on winning one match. Uh, and it's not even that popular of a, of a deck. I think it's a very good deck. If I wasn't playing Affinity, it would be probably my next two choices to play. But it's it's not one that Affinity is that great at winning. Uh, it isn't unwinnable. The matches that you're going to win are when you can uh, get a quick ATOG kill, or after sideboard, when you can pyroblast a key cloud of fairies or a key snap or something, and just fizzle them from going off, because they normally use a a decent number of cards in, in trying to get to that point where they can storm out. Yeah. Okay. And the the other one, the other matchup uh, is uh, Trench. Well, or its variations. Let's say uh, uh, E Hustle's uh, uh, deck. Uh, that's what red black. With yeah, the, red black. Uh, how how do you feel about that matchup? Because that's kind of a combo deck, right? It's a combo deck that is very geared towards beating creature matchups in that they have a, a whole bunch of one-ups in their deck that they can dredge to that win a, a variety of matchups. They have, well, they'll have multiple fume spitters, but against Affinity, they have Ingot Chewer that's really good when, you know, when they're just every turn going, uh, The, the one in the black guy that you can madness in to return a creature from your graveyard, when they're doing that every turn, plus playing the ingot chewer that they're uh, getting from him and knocking out an artifact, uh, it can make those matches really hard. And they're running four of the... What's the one-two flying death touch? Uh, the Stinkweed Stink- Stink- yeah. Dimp. Yeah. Uh, Stinkweed is hard for almost any creature that could beat if they're playing it. Uh, on, you know, turn three or four, which the deck can do reliably simply because they have other dredge creatures to help them find them. Okay. Uh, so, so these are, these combo decks, I guess, are relatively bad matchups for Affinity then. Yes, yeah. Okay. And a little aside on, uh, Torture Existence, I think it's a really good deck, but you need to have a whole lot of practice with it. Like, a good, a good Tortured Existence player is going to beat me most of the time. But someone who does have much experience, I think, is going to lose most of the time just because they aren't going to know what to value correctly. Yeah, I, th- I think I'd lose all the time if I played it. <laughs> Lots of practice. I'm, you know, I'm sure I'd lose ninety percent of my matches before I actually got any practice with it. Okay, so let's do one final matchup, and that's the mirror. So, what what uh, kind of things can you do to give you an edge in the mirror matchup? The thing you can do to give you an edge in the mirror is play the version that's playing your, uh, that's playing the behemoths, that's playing the 3-2 flyers and the 3-3 flyers and scales of Chistoria. Simply because you're now more of an aggro deck than Affinity already is. I probably lose 75% of the mirror matches, but I'm definitely winning a whole lot more than those builds are because I can beat more than just the aggro decks, which uh, they're really, really good at beating the aggro decks, but against the storm builds and stuff, they're they're just going to skew. Okay. Well, I, I, I hadn't realized uh, how how important those those differences were in that yeah, sense. Like I have I have 16 threats, in the, and they have 24 threats, plus scaled Chisporia to make their four, four fours and the four fives that it's just it's really tough if they're running that version. Okay. Yeah, I guess that just just giving them one extra toughness uh, when everything's the same is gonna 
yeah, just tilt it enough to their side. All right. Um, I think that's about it for matchups. Before we finish talking about Affinity, I just want to talk the financial aspect, uh, which I, uh, I've actually received some feedback say, uh, from from a few people saying that they find this this section quite useful. Gives them uh, an idea of whether they want to uh, put the money into into the decks. Um, so Affinity is actually one of the cheapest decks right now because all of its cards, all of the cards in the main deck, you can get at bulk price. And that, that means that basically means less than, say, 0.2 ticks. Right? So you can build the main deck for between 2 and 3 ticks, just depending on, on, on where you go to. Uh, obviously, this doesn't include Lotus Petal, but as we already discussed, uh, that's, that's not really uh, tech for this deck anymore. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, aren't, aren't the, at least when I built it, uh, all the artifact lands are about a minimum of a quarter, aren't they? Uh, they used to, uh, but you can get them pretty cheap these days. Uh, it's gone down since. Yeah, and okay. and especially there was a there was a um, a recent week when uh, they were drafting Mirrodin drafts, oh, and that brought real. them down even more. So right now they're they're pretty cheap. But yeah, yeah. That, that was. I think the only one that's a quarter. I mean, I looked. A while ago, the only one I remember being a quarter was, of course, the blue one. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm checking the one of the most expensive sites right now, and uh, the seed of Sino, the blue one, is uh, 15 cents. Not bad at all. Yeah. So there you are. R- really, the lands are the most important. Uh, I mean, expensive part of the main deck. Now, the sideboard that's a little bit more expensive because you really want to have your hydroblasts and your pyroblasts, as they are very important cards. So they're they're normally around two ticks, two and a bit each. And uh, if you want to go like uh, Kyle, you want four of each. So you know that's gonna <laughs> bring the cost up to uh, what sixteen? Uh, yeah, sixteen, sixteen ticks. And I think all the other cards are really bulk, unless you want to include something like Gorilla Shaman or Serrated Arrows. Um, in, in general, I recommend anyone getting into Popper to get their copies of Pyroblast and Hydroblasts as soon as possible. Uh, they do oscillate a lot in their in their costs. Sometimes they'll be up to around three ticks. Uh, but if you're starting up and and like you see them at two ticks, you should just just grab some because they go into a lot of decks. Um, so yeah, your sideboard is going between you know 10 and 20 ticks, depending on how many of those you're going to put in. Um, so really, that's going to be the main cost of your deck. It's gonna, you're going to be able to get this deck in, at a competitive level for probably less than 20 ticks. That's all we have for today. Uh, remember that you can reach us uh, by sending an email to popperscage at gmail.com or by leaving a comment in mtgcast.com or in our blog at popperscage.blogspot.ca. Hey, Dime, maybe you can enlighten us on how to watch some cool YouTube clips of you testing out your decks. Sure. Well, I just want to say to everyone, please check out my YouTube page. My uh, account is Dime Collector SC, and there should be a link on our show notes where you can see all of my popper videos. I've got deck techs, gameplay, daily events, the works. So please check it out. Please subscribe if you do like what you see. Thanks.
Perfect. Well, uh, okay. So thank you, Love. Thank you. And thank you, Dime. Thank you very much. And once again, a very special thanks to Kyle for joining us. I had fun. Thanks for having me. Okay. And thank you, listeners. And until next time. Thank you.